Yes, you are listening to Behind the Lens. Welcome to yet another edition of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews 24-7 online and in print in the U.S. and abroad. But every Monday, you can find me right here on Adrenaline Radio at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. As we go behind the lens and below the line with... Veteran filmmakers, new filmmakers. Um, today, and Brian is here today. Yay! He made it. Is he talking? I did make it. You did make it. Yep. I, I'm here most of the week. I just missed that one week last. And then ago. running late and all kinds oh, yeah. of things. Yeah, yeah. No, well, not running late. I was here 20 minutes prior to the program. That's, that's good radio time. I'm today you got here six minutes before. No. Yes. Let's not lie to our audience. We're not lying to the audience. No. I looked at the clock. I got here because I was looking at. I got here at ten forty-six, and then I I was looking at our new door for about like five minutes. Well, uh, that doesn't whether, count. Unsure of whether I can just walk in or not because I figured this looks like it just got plastered. If yeah. I, if I push anything on the other side of it and it spills, we got a new carpet. I don't want to be the one. To yeah, blame, to so. ruin to ruin the carpet. Yeah, so I was here, but I just, I mean, I I mean, I've been here for eight years, and boy, that was that was something <laughs> else, you know. So that's why that's why I, I kind of well, to... I've been here for over three now. So I I took me by surprise this morning at how quickly construction. Um, our our, our wonderful own, station owner Nick Federoff is doing some remodeling on the station. And uh, just really quickly, guys, we used to have this big old garage door in the front of the building that was it made you feel cool when you when you walked in because it it made this loud noise going up and you had to ring the doorbell in order for someone to answer the door for you. And now it's just I mean, the the door was probably like, what, like 25 feet. Yeah, maybe by by maybe like 15 feet in length. Yeah, right. It was a standard like garage size door. You can fit a truck into it. basically Because we've done it anyway. That's gone. I well, I didn't see it. I didn't. I don't well, the, the gate is actually rolled up. Yeah. But it's not going to matter because with that, yeah. you know, this new configuration. I mean, sometimes I I don't even know if they thought about it. Sometimes we do need to load a lot of equipment. Yeah, that's <laughs> through a door. I'm not. Sure. I wish someone would have talked to me about it because it's like, hey, remember all those other days when when we're when we're hauling radio and TV equipment out the door really quickly. Yeah, that's not going to be. That's a, not going to happen now. Yeah, but going to require some more logistical planning. Oh yeah, we have two doors now that are not anywhere near. No, they're standard doors. Yeah, standard doors don't always accommodate TV and radio equipment. And that one's boring too. I know. Like standard door could have had like a glass door, something, or like a screen door, or like a door that slides open, like a convenience door. 
senses you and then it just slides no. open and breaks apart in two ways. And no screen door because then it looks like a house. Yeah. No, no, no. Brian, come on. But good morning to everybody. I'm yes. happy to be here. It's air-conditioned. It's air-conditioned in here, which is very, very lovely. Yep. Um, of course, I understand our half of the building is air-conditioned. Yeah, it, that's always been the case. The other half of the building, the air conditioner is not working. They have their own little uh, switch on that side, and every once in a while that switch likes to fool around ah. and not start up. And so that's what, hap- that's what happened. And with the way – we're not even in summer yet, but the, oh, as hot as it's been, I feel bad for all the people that have to be on that side of the room, which I'm not allowed in, so – that's okay. Yeah. We're on the good side. We're on the great side. Not the good side, the great side. The great there. side. We're at a crisp 70 degrees right now. And of course, you know, what you know, you're talking about it's not summer yet. Summer officially starts in two days. Yeah, but I, I'm still, I feel like I'm getting gypped out of my spring. Why? Because it's already hot. Oh, okay. I, are you, I don't know if, if you're like me. I just nap all day now. I mean, I did that regardless, but now I feel like I have an excuse. You know, I really wish I could nap all day. I've been spending every single day. At L.A. Film Festival since it started on Wednesday. Awesome. Every single day. So how hot was it out there? Because you were there Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, right? Or Wednesday? Wednesday night I was there for the opening night red carpet, which was spectacular. Um, All the videos are up on my YouTube channel, Elias Entertainment Behind the Lens. Um, We've got 19 videos from opening night that include... Of course, Leia Thompson, Back to the Future. Leia has makes her feature film directorial debut with this incredible film called The Year of Spectacular Men, which just premiered at L.A. Film Festival. Uh, she was on the red carpet and chatted with us. What are you doing, Brian, playing with the phone? No, I've got to post on Facebook. Oh, he's got to post on Facebook. Um, so it was so lovely, so lovely to see Leia and talk to Leia. Leia and I go, we first met back... Uh, in the days of how, on the set of Howard the Duck. And we always reconnect every little, in, you know, every few years. And uh, when her daughter Zoe's film Vampire Academy came out about five years, four, four years ago, I think, we were talking then about this very film, The Year of Spectacular Men, the financing that they had had just fallen through. Uh, this was the film made by the Deutsch women, by Leia and her two daughters, Uh, Maddie and Zoe. Maddie's a screenwriter and also the composer of the film. And of course, Dad, Howard Deutsch, is one of the producers on the film. But it is absolutely a delight. So we got to reconnect and and talk all about the film and to see it finally come from the depths of despair when they thought they'd never get the film off the ground when that financing fell through to now have the film done and premiered at L.A. Film Festival. I don't think I've ever seen Leia happier. She was just beside herself. And then we caught up and did additional interviews uh, during the course of the festival. Talked to Elliot Gould uh, the other night. I know Brian isn't even looking. Yes, Brian's looking. He He's typing. He can't He can't talk and type. No, I can't. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm post. I couldn't get the Twitter running on the... On oh. the, on the Anyway, I, the Twitter. I, you sound like Craig Ferguson. I have the Twitter. <laughs> the Twitter. I actually had a story about uh, uh, Leia that you were saying. Oh, tell tell I us was, a Leia story. Uh, it's really quickly. I was watching Everybody Wants Some, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you've seen that 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 movie any anytime recently, but her daughter is in it. And I was looking at her daughter, and I was like, Why do I know who she is? Why does she look so strikingly familiar to me? 
I, I was like, I've seen her somewhere else, and she is a, a carbon copy of her mother. Yes. And and I and it just I I had one of those moments where you finally connected, and I was like, that she's from Back to the Future. I was like, but she's wait a minute. Yeah. I mean, because it, it's set in the time period, we can, <laughs> you know. So I had one of those Brian moments, but I, I think it's adorable that that they're all working together. I mean, this they have worked on this film to get it done for so long now. And I am I am beyond thrilled for Leia, absolutely thrilled, you know. And as I was saying, I I got to speak with Elliot Gould the other night. We chatted about his film Humor Me, uh, which is directed, written and directed by Sam Hoffman, uh, based on his website, play, and book, uh, Old Jews Who Tell Jokes. And I got to tell you, if any, if you have not checked out Sam's the website for Old Jews Who Tell Jokes. You really need to because they are hilarious. And of course, what better person to have starring in the film than Elliot Gould and joining him, Jermaine Clement. Um, and Jermaine is just Flight of the Concords, Jermaine Clement, for all you for all you fans of his out there. With the Smash It Shiny. Smash It Oh, well, yes. I sing that song to myself. From Moana. Every day, basically. I, I just yell out Shiny. At random intervals of the day, that's how infectious that. You that know, song is. I did not. I did not speak to him about Shiny on the carpet the other night. I, you know, I feel badly. I did not. But I saw. I saw him in concert. So I guess if I would have ran into him, I would have yelled out Shiny at him. And then how awesome the Flight of the Concords are. I mean, it's amazing. In concert, yeah. I think the first time that I took notice of Jermaine was a, a, this tiny little indie film. Oh, uh, probably. 15 years ago maybe called eagle eagle uh versus shark and it just it's his patented brand of of humor and it's it's a charming little film and to see what he's done over the years and things but you're right shiny is spectacular <laughs> shiny is spectacular no, i i have those moments when you're in the red carpet you don't think about the things that that interest you in a, in a sense it's about the product and what's being placed in front of you, which is why you're the consummate professional and I'll be the one that's yelling out, Shiny! Well, of course, I, ha- I have to say, my cats are now famous. Elliot Gould asked me, he was like very pleased that I had seen the film. Going into the festival, I, I ultimately had seen 41 films before this festival started. I know, the look on Brian's face says it all. I muted my microphone, I said, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> um... So and since then I've added more. So I'm up to 47 or 48 now Boy. that I've seen. Um, and there are there are a couple, not quite that. There are some that, that just didn't have the chops to make the annual must see festival films column, which you can anybody who wants to see it and see what films to be on the lookout for, you can go to behindthelensonline.net and check it out. L A F F must see festival films, uh, but. No, Elliot wanted to know, oh, so you saw it. Who did you see it with? I said, my cats. He goes, well, what are their names? <laughs> Elliot was very interested in the cats. So Karon Clark and Yoda, they they are now famous thanks to Elliot Gould, um, which I thought was absolutely charming. Well, they're the producers of this program, too. I've seen photos of them with you while you're constructing the program. Yes, you have. Yeah, so... Yes, you have. They've had their paws all over this. They they have their paws all over everything. But, you know, there are and another great film. A, a great film that I saw, Fat Camp. Fun and funny from Jennifer Arnold. Um, 
And Friday, they got a distribution deal with BET for television and theatrical. So put Fat Camp on your radar, people, because it is coming. And uh, it's hilarious. It is one of the funniest films in the festival. Um, my One of my ultimate fave, though, this fest, next to Leia's film, The Year of Spectacular Men, is Shot Caller by my friend, the wonderful Rick Roman Waugh. Uh, wrote and directed it. That was the Centerpiece Gala on Saturday night. I think I think there's another 17 or 18 interviews that uh, I did there um, with some of the handsomest men all in one place, all at one time. It was lovely. But... No, so the festival, it has been really good. There are a lot of great gems out there to look for. There's one film in particular I have to I have to mention called Layana. It is live action animated documentary and made in Swaziland by filmmakers Aaron and Amanda Kopp. And Aaron is from Swaziland. They they became familiar with you know the orphanages and the schools in the area for all these children that have been displaced and orphaned because of all the warring that goes that has ha- occurred and also from disease. It's one of the highest AIDS AIDS related death countries in in South Africa. And they put together they met up with the this school and these children, and thanks to a, an author who came into the classroom started talking to the kids about they're going to they're going to do a book they're going to they're going to put together tell a story and you watch these kids answer questions and come up with ideas for this story about this fictional girl Liana who goes on a journey and with her bull and you you're inner cut and you're hearing the kids talk about things but you're also learning a lot of this is very cathartic for them based on their own life experiences they talk about Liana's father getting sick with AIDS and dying. They talk about things out in nature that they encounter, like a crocodile blowing bubbles in the water. And then you see these 8- and 10-year-old kids acting this out. Then there is this incredible animator uh, who they brought in, who did all the illustrations to illustrate their story as it's unfolding on film. Uh I think there is going to be a theatrical. I know that they are turning out a comic book edition. Yeah. And the cops have set up a college scholarship program for the all of these boys so that they can go to college. That's incredible. But the movie is, you look at the animation, you look and it's put together so well from a technical aspect. But the real joy is their imaginations and their creativity just comes out. And one of the boys, he even says, you know, where do you see yourself? You know, after having survived war and famine and the, mur- you know, the death of his parents, it, you know, he then says he wants to be a storyteller. That is his goal is to be a storyteller. And when you see a documentary like this and you hear from children like this, it, it moves you beyond belief. But it also gives you great hope and inspiration, not only for the future of storytelling in cinema, but for the world. That there are there are filmmakers who have a voice that use it in a positive way, and they showcase 
these positive voices that will become the future. So keep your eyes out for Liana. And we'll get back to some more L.A. Film Festival films in just a moment. As the festival does run through Thursday in Culver City at the Arclight. And the Culver Hotel is as the base of operations, but with other screenings being held in Santa Monica. And I think they're finished with uh, Arclight Hollywood. But right now, I am very excited to welcome to the show writer-director Adam Reeves, who's going to talk to us about his new film, My Brother's Shoes. Hello, Adam. Welcome to Behind the Lens. Hey, Debbie. Thanks for having me online. Oh, I am so thrilled to have you on the show, Adam. This movie is, it is sweet, it is charming, it is funny, and it has a wonderful, wonderful core messaging uh, with heart in it. You know, where, you you know, briefly tell the audience what My Brother's Shoes are about and where the idea for this story came from. Well, I've always had the philosophy that before you judge anybody, you really should live a day in their shoes. And um, when I think about relationships and family, one of the biggest um, concerns sometimes is the gay-straight relationship, where even though they accept, they don't really get. And so the story, the plot line about two brothers, one older, one younger, one straight, one gay, they they each one thinks the other has a better life. And I just wanted to say through a fantasy... Um, basically, just live a day in each other's shoes and find out what it's really like. And maybe when the experience is over, you'll have a better understanding that you don't really know each other, and now you appreciate each other a lot more. Well, you know, part of part of the joy here is in your casting. For, your t- for the two brothers, you've got Pete Stringfellow, who plays Dallas, and Jacob Ellis, who plays younger brother Austin. And if you had not cast these roles right, Adam, this would not have would not play as beautifully as it does. How difficult was it to find these two guys? I know any country music fans out there, you know who Pete Stringfellow is. Trust me. Yeah, he does have a big following. Right? He has a... And I love his music. Uh-huh. Um, but to see him here, in the, because he's done some acting parts, but nothing really substantive, this is extremely right. substantive right. for him. Uh, well, as what's is, great about Pete is when I wrote the film, you always think of somebody you know in, in mind to make sure that somebody can play the role. And I did write it thinking I was going to offer to Pete. And I met with him as soon as I had a basic script and went over the treatment with him. He was so excited to be working with me and be in a film. Then he started hearing the story, and he started getting cold feet and saying, Ugh, I don't know how my country fans are going to like this. Because, as you know, I don't want to do spoilers, but he does have to go through some extreme scenes. And he was nervous about it, and he was kind of like, I just don't know, Adam. And I said, Pete, this is all the more reason you need to play this role, because the part of Dallas that you'll be playing is nervous and is uncomfortable and is out of his element. And so this is going to be an unnatural for you, Pete. And he, he, it showed through in the film. He looked awkward. He looked uncomfortable. Uh, he was still charming. Mm-hmm. And he tried to, you know, go with the flow, but he still had his issues. Well, and he was able to express those through the script. But the beauty of that uncomfortableness that the character that Pete goes through as Dallas is the mm-hmm. fact that it all stems from his love for his brother. Right, right. And this is something. Fact, he proves his love for his brother a lot more than the other brother proves. Yeah. You know, it. Definitely. 
that's one of the wonderful, wonderful underlying things here as you watch this unfold. It's not just about wa- spending a day walking in somebody else's shoes, but it's the lengths that you go to and are willing to go to for the people you love. And, and there's that nice scene, too, when he's on the bed, sitting on the bed with um, Jackie, which is um, Austin's best friend. And Jackie really nails it when he turns to him and says, you really don't know your brother, do you? Mm-hmm. you know? And he realizes, Dallas realizes, no, I don't. I, I have no idea what his life is like and what he has to go through. And I thought that's kind of the climax of the movie as far as putting a uh, nail on the, uh, hitting the nail on the head with a hammer mm-hmm. as far as driving point, what the point is about the film. So. And, of course, at that moment, you, ha- you pick up some beautiful, thoughtful, and reflective visual images of, uh, mm-hmm. of Pete at that, at that point as Dallas. Yeah. And you let them, you know, they linger beautifully. You know, your editing is clean, which just helps with the pacing and keeps things going. But you hold on those beautiful moments. And your cinematographer, Nico Vandenberg, has some beautiful, beautiful images throughout the film. But there's this cohesive tonal bandwidth that even when we go into more extre- a more extreme setting in the third act, it's, it's, it looks like, okay, it's a totally different world, but it still feels like it belongs. Yeah, and as you can see, the, with the editing and the cinematography, the first act, or the first half hour, really, it's like three acts. It's, it's longer scenes. It's getting to know the characters, and it's actually serious. Some people started watching the movie and said, I thought this was a comedy. And the first act is really pretty heavy, some mm-hmm. of the moments. And the second act becomes fantasy and crazy, and then by the third act, it's just zany, and the scenes are boom, 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 cutting back and forth from different locations. And, and they're mirroring each other. You know, one's back mm-hmm. in the dressing room dealing with an issue, one's in a bedroom dealing with an issue. Mm-hmm. So they're coinciding at the same time, which were, I thought worked really well. You know, and that's a testament to, your edit, to yourself and your editor uh, to get that timing down right. But what you also do in those back and forth mirror moments is the music that you, each one has distinct music. Each brother has distinct oh, music. Very good. I'll, I'm going to tell the composer about that because we worked hard to have a Dallas theme and an Austin theme, and then at times when they're looking at each other in the mirror, the two play with each other, making a nice duet. So mm-hmm. thank you for noticing that. Oh, very good. I loved it. You know, the music throughout. You know, and I'm surprised Pete didn't contribute any music to this. Pete had his hands full with the acting. He was, he, was, he was on almost every scene, so he had a lot of work to do. Well, you know, there wouldn't be there wouldn't be Pete's Dallas if there wasn't Jacob Ellis's Austin. What led you to Jacob? You know, he he comes across very insecure, very timid, very sweet, very young, very young. <laughs> <laughs> I had to check his ID to make sure he was young enough to be in the old enough to be in the film, but. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, he, we did open casting. We, we, cast, we cast and shot and used the crew. Everybody was from the East Bay. Uh, we tried to use the local talents only from here. And we opened it up to L.A. and San Francisco casting. And Jacob was a local. And once again, he also was a little nervous about playing the role. But he, he nailed a lot of the scenes with he and his best friend Jackie in the auditions. Mm-hmm. So we knew that with some coaching and working. And he was a little awkward kind of feeling, too. And I think that works in the film. A lot of the stuff that would people would say, wow, that actor looked a little uncomfortable, comes through the uncomfortableness of the character, which I think was great. Mm-hmm. You know, and we both, you know, we keep mentioning Jackie. I got to tell you, scene stealer, standout, Blake Feigert. 
Oh my God, where? Totally unfamiliar with him. He is a new face on my radar. Where did <laughs> Where did you find Blake? Well, he was a local. Unfortunately, he's moved back to Australia. He is Australian. Um, he tried to find work in L.A. and stuff. And, you know, the film, films take two or three years. Hopefully this will get him back in the spotlight again. But he was, we had, we always have a type in mind, and I was not even thinking of using someone like him. Um, I was thinking of more ethnic, colored, kind of, you know, like colorful type character. I was actually hoping to get an Afro-American or Asian to, to look, you know, to balance out the cast, because I'm not an all-white type caster and this guy just came in and he blew us out of the water and i thought well australian i i never would have pictured that and it just worked so well and he bleached his hair because everybody was dark haired in the movie and he actually volunteered to do that we wanted to have a blonde wife and once again we had a lot of blondes come in but greta blew us away also during auditions and so it was keeping it open and a lot of surprises during the casting process where it went in directions that I didn't plan and what a goldmine to find Jackie, uh, Blake Farragut, who just worked out great. I mean, he... he... was such a natural, and I could see him. I would want him as a best friend. Oh. Somebody who would help get you through this stuff. Oh, so. absolutely. And the camera loves him. Yeah, so doesn't he have gorgeous... I mean, and, and of course, not a spoiler, but when he's in the later scenes, how beautiful. Um, wow, and it was, you know, the makeup artist was so thrilled to be working with him. He was a natural. So. Oh, I, you know, I mean, just from beginning to end. Well, what's very striking is with Blake, his eyes capture you right away. Yes. You're very drawn to he his eyes, big, big eyes. And he knows how to use them to create facial expressiveness. Mm-hmm. Which, you yeah, know. Yeah, it still comes out natural. He could play, mm-hmm. he could have played the, the part really campy. And he, he allows it to become a natural best friend type of playing around, having fun, but it, it comes off naturally. Mm-hmm. And his wonderful scene, we're talking about his father, and just that, I don't know if you noticed, the camera never cuts. It pretty much stays on his face. We slowly zoom in, and he just held that camera. And as long as he was holding my attention to the scene, the camera was going to stay on him. And that scene worked all the way through as the music slowly comes in. And at one point, the music even just dead stops for mm-hmm. a moment and then picks up again. And it was just a great scene. I, I still get chills when I see that scene myself. No, that, that scene, it's absolutely heart-wrenching. And as you said, and that, that's something, because this is, it's, it's a very small, intimate film with an intimate, looking at intimate relationships between, you know, brothers and, you know, a best friend thrown in there as well, and a wife, right. but not so much her, more, <laughs> more the other three. But you very judiciously use close-ups. So often in a situation yeah. like this, a direct, some directors feel the need to constantly do cut, 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 close, 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 bouncing from face to face. You do mid-shots, you hold them so we have both brothers in the frame, and then when you choose to do, to zoom in, to do a close-up, it's on those moments where you have a performer that is doing a very singular monologue or reaction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, and it's, it's nice, too, not to make it like a music video where it just is so fast. And people, some people are saying you can't hold a scene, you know, a cut for longer than three or four seconds. No, as long as something's going on in the camera, as long as I'm entertained by what I'm watching, and then if I need to, like, put the focus on somebody for an important part or reaction, like you said, even during the filming, I hadn't planned on doing a close-up of somebody, but if they had a funny reaction or some little moment, like in the office scene when they say, Mitch, oh, the cute guy, and then Austin even just gives a little kind of <laughs> smile, too, like he knows, that was a great little moment. 
and it just helps solidify the character and helps you care about them. Because if you didn't care about these three people or four, you wouldn't care about the ending. You wouldn't keep watching. You would say, so what, you know, at the end when they have the final resolution? No big deal. Yeah, I mean, you get very invested in these characters very quickly. And it's because of the casting and the likability of all of these guys. Yeah. You want to know... You want to know each one of these guys. Well, you want to, hopefully when the film ends, you wish you could get to see them again. Yeah. Um, not necessarily watching the film again, but just in continuing the life. You know, maybe Jackie and Austin go off and do some contests somewhere else or something. Or, you know, Pete has his life with his baby and some of his experiences and living, you know, in his home now with a new baby. So those kind of things. You want to continue a little bit more yeah. and see more about them. You, you miss them. Yeah, that's what you need to have is a friend that goes away and you think of them still. That's what I want the movie to do. And I think it succeeds because I personally would love to have actually have all three of them and know them in my life. There you go. I think that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> he might be calling you now that he hears once he hears the interview. Oh, well, good. <laughs> you know, I... he does have a huge fan base, and I'm doing a lot of social media. I've got you know Facebook. We have our website. We have Twitter. We have everything, and. His fan base has been great, and they have you know, gone out and supported the film. They showed up at a lot of the theatrical showings, and they say they're buying and renting. We'll find out. But um, we have it, like I said, it's, it's available everywhere, so it's very easy. And that's the hard part is we would talk about the film, and someone would say, well, how do I get it? And I went, well, you know, wait. But now it's out there. It's been great, and the response has been wonderful. Oh, I mean, I'm thrilled. It's on every platform available, too. None of this. Oh, you can, none of this. Oh, you can only get it on iTunes, or you can only get it on Amazon. It's on everything. Right. right, it's on Dish and everything. In fact, I pick up my little Comcast remote and I hold the button down and say "My brother's shoes," and boom, it pops up on my screen. It's just a kick. So, okay, so now, truth be told, Adam, how many times have you done that just for the joy of seeing that? <laughs> That's terrible to ask that question, <laughs> but yes, I would say it's been over twenty, twenty-five at least. And when I have company over, I just go, uh, watch this. And then, yeah, boom, the movie comes up. And they're, <laughs> it's like a magic trick almost. It's oh, fun. my God. How did, let me ask you, before, before I have to let you go for our next guest, um, sure. you know, how, long, how difficult was it getting distribution for this film? Well, I was, we had some people involved in the film that had, had distribution. Um, they were able to get some for their small films. And um, they thought it would be easy, but as you know, the competition's pretty hard out there. But I was thrilled. I, I, I hired an agent to help me get it out there, honestly. Mm-hmm. And we had at least seven to eight offers within the first couple of days we put it out there um, with a preview. So I, I knew we had a nice movie on our hands when that happened. And Random Media has been great. They're the ones we finally went with, and they have connections with Sony. And we're in Australia, New Zealand. I mean, they've been amazing getting our film out there. And having us listed on some of those platforms saying new release or new and noteworthy. Mm-hmm. So we're up there up front in the line, not just mixed in with a bunch of other people. So they have been wonderful. Well, it is so well deserved, Adam. I mean, I can't wait to see what you do next. Well, thank you. I thank mean, you. and I do hope you'll come back on the show again. This has been a, this has been a great way to start a Monday. Well, I'd love to. Debbie, you have a great interview, too. Thank you so much for your comments and compliments. Oh. And for noticing so much. Thank you. You know, thank you, Adam, and I look forward to talking to you again. All right. Bye-bye. And that was Adam Reeves, writer and director of My Brother's Shoes. It is on every platform imaginable right now. 
It is fun. You will love it. It's a great way to kick off the summer. And now, okay, Brian has connected me here. So who do I have? Do I have Bert Marcus, Cyrus, and Cassie? Hi. This is Cyrus. Yeah, you got Cyrus and uh, Bert Marcus. Hello, guys. Welcome, welcome to Behind the Lens. I am thrilled to have you. you. And, you know, what we started. So how was that premiere on June 15th at the Santa Monica Arclight? It was awesome. <laughs> we had a, a great turnout, so much fun. Uh, you know, it was great to finally bring to life uh, a film that uh, has been 30 years, you know, in, in the making. Uh, such a rich history and, um, you know, a film that we, we really felt was necessary to be told properly. And it was just a lot of fun. You know, I'm I'm curious, yeah. you know, what we started, give give the audience a basic synopsis of what this what this documentary is. Well, the film's a cultural retelling of the last thirty years of electronic dance music and its effect not just on music but American culture. Um at the core of it, I mean, the film is really about human resiliency. Um and you know, this 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 genre has fought for its survival for decades. And so at the core of it, you know, that's kind of the uh, the essence of the film. And we really wanted to do justice to all the you know phenomenal icons and pioneers who have paved the way uh, for this huge rise that we've seen in electronic dance music over the last few years. Well, you know, I have to say, I mean, number one, this is a stunning film visually. It is absolutely gorgeous. High production values, beautiful polish to it. It really, it grabs you visually, and then it then it takes you into the oral soundscape as well. I mean, just a, tec- uh, a technical stunner. Thank you so much. I mean, thank we take know. a lot of pride in, in, in our production value, and especially this genre. It's so important because the visuals are just in, as important as the music. So, you know, we really try to provide the experience for everybody um, and make you feel like you were, uh, you know, a part of, the various, you know, shows or, or festivals or, you know, the experience is a, is a huge part of what we wanted to provide for everybody. And, uh, you know, we wanted to tell it in an unbiased way and really uh, capture, you know, the essence and, and aura of the of the genre um, and, and make it so that it was a film not just appealing to people who are, you know, diehards and, and huge uh, electronic dance music fans, but really, you know, anybody and uh, allow you to relate to the various artists and music in a, in a whole new way. So, you know, ultimately we wanted just to make a really fun film that had a lot of heart and, you know, we were able to stay true to, uh, stay true to, you know, what the story was in a, in a completely unbiased way. Well, and, and I'm curious, I love how you, how you bookend the show, uh, the film, because, and it feels like a show. That's, it feels like a show when I watch it, like I'm watching a concert experience. Um, you have Martin Garrix in there. You open up with him. You bring us into, you know, uh, to Carl Cox, who has been legendary at Space Ibiza for the past 15 years. So you have somebody just fresh and starting out at age 18. You have somebody now in his 50s who's, you know, winding down his own legendary career. How did you choose the two of them and go about creating the the whole construct of the documentary because there's a you have so much included in here 
And there is, and it could not have been easy to design the entire timeline and construct that you have going. So I'm curious how you went about developing that. You know, it's it's never easy telling an all-encompassing story in under 90 minutes. And I think for Cyrus and I, you know, I think one of the one of the important qualities was, how, uh, you know, one of the most important things for us in developing the film at the beginning was how do we tell a story that's interesting, that's nonlinear, that's not a history lesson. Um, and, and that's not what this film is. This film is, you know, the, what we tried to do in our attempt was how do we find especially as our main characters, how do we find characters that people can relate to and a story that people don't know about? And I think what's interesting is, you know, Carl Cox and Martin Garrix are two polar opposites. You know, everything from their families to their backgrounds, how they were raised to the types of music they play and how they rose to stardom is completely opposite. And that dichotomous relationship is something that I feel, you know, we, we, we really paid careful attention in... in interweaving it in a really unique way. Um, and like we said, you know, like, you know, Cyrus and I always said, we, we wanted to tell the story in a, in a nonlinear fashion. And I think by, by choosing Martin and Carl, that was the best way to do this. And once, uh, you know, I was introduced to Carl Cox and, uh, you know, obviously we had a relationship with Martin, um, you know, as since he was a teenager and obviously in the last two, three months, he's become the number one DJ in the world. And um, obviously, seeing Carl kind of have to close down space, it seemed like the perfect opportunity to um, to tell these two stories and interweave these stories in a way that I think people would find extremely unexpected. And uh, I think, you know, Cyrus being the expert in this, in this genre could tell you the last thing I think most people would ever, you know, think about in creating an electronic dance music film was putting Carl Cox and Martin Garrix as, as your leads. Yeah. And I think that was something yeah, that yeah. we... Um, we, 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 we paid careful attention in doing that because especially for myself, being someone who, who doesn't come from the scene, I wanted to tell the story in a way that I'd want to watch this in a way that I think would grab people that don't have a background or knowledge of the genre. And so they, you know, both guys are phenomenal people and, and, and phenomenal talents. But like I said, there's such opposites and that dichotomy is, is what I think really makes the, uh, the story so unique. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you, yeah, if I, go oh, ahead, Cyrus, go ahead. Sorry, man. Now I just wanted to add something to um, your question and also Bert's response is uh, um, one of the great things we've been working with Bert, and I kind of knew this going into it, was um, based on his previous films, such as Champs. I mean, if, you, if you've seen Champs or not, I'm not sure. But, you know, going into Champs, I thought I was going to just gonna see another boxing movie, and there have been so many. But, I mean, walking away, I had basically goosebumps and maybe a couple of tears at the end of it. And, the angles which Bert took in telling the story of people who we know so well and so deeply we think we know, like, you know, Mike and Evander, um, I really thought he'd be a great person to, to, you know, tell the story of dance music that hasn't been told before. Um, also, you know, there was a lot of risk taken in, in the leads that we chose because there were easier um, people to pick for obvious reasons of popularity. And even at the time when we chose Martin, yes, today he is the number one DJ in the world. Yes, he is the one with the most traction on social media. But at the time that we chose to work with him, he was not. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't know that he was going to be. It was three years before um, he reached you know, absolute superstardom. So that was a big risk. And also Carl has um, not only been around for 15 years for the space aspect of it, but one of the big things with people like Martin, obviously there are others like Martin in the scene who are young, who, know, who are standing on the shoulder of giant, giants. 
Um, and Carl is one of them. And Carl's probably the only figure in the electronic music industry who's respected by everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's probably loved by everyone. So to get Carl was not an easy task, but once we did, and the fact that Bert, you know, um, immediately as soon as he found out who Carl was, wanted to have Carl in there, I knew that we were onto making something, you know, at least uh, unique and truthful to the essence of the culture. You know, how did you go about deciding who you'd have for your interview subjects, who you would include in this overview of EDM? I mean, because you bring in Tiesto, you bring in Sasha, you've got, you know, incredible star, like you got Moby in here, you've got Usher, Ed Sheeran, all are on board here talking. How did you decide who you'd go after and in what capacity, you know, would you bring them in? You know, I feel like a lot of, there, there's been so many, like Cyrus mentioned, there's been so many documentaries and YouTube channels and, and things about, you know, different artists. And so watching those, you know, I would see who is kind of, you know, all out on those and, and, and making, um, you know, a lot of those things are very promotional. And they've been, you know, especially in this genre, very promoting a particular artist or festival or pushing something. And I think for us, the real goal of the film was not to push an agenda, not to push something. And so anybody that we included in the film, we wanted to keep true to the essence and aura of this culture. And we, we, we brought in a cast and, and, and people who all they wanted to tell, all they wanted from us was, can you guys tell this story? Right. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you find, can someone finally tell this story? Because it's, it's something that has such relevance in uh, not just music, but, um, you know, pop culture all over the world as well. Right. And so, you know, I think in deciding the cast, the important thing for us was just that people could open up in a really kind of, un, you know, in a candid way, in an unprecedented way, and, and, and really just share with us their experiences uh, in a way they maybe haven't opened up, you know, in a way before. And I think that that was really the the, the key for us was, you know, how do we, and, and you're not going to be able to include everybody, unfortunately. I mean, it's, you know, we have to tell a story, we have to make it entertaining, and we and we want to stay true to to the essence of the culture. So, being able to do that in under ninety minutes is is a is a massive undertaking. And um, you know, we're obviously very fortunate that the, the the cast is so passionate about sharing these stories and their personal stories in ways in which they haven't before. And so, I think you know, uh, developing relationships with the cast and finding passion from the cast was was key to us because we didn't want it to be like any other film that's been made before. Mm-hmm. Well, and, yeah, so- and, and if I may add, it, it, it wasn't easy. There's actually, A, there's a lot of, there's a lot on the cutting room floor and, you know, talent that we should not name now, but I mean, obviously amazing talent that we couldn't include in the film because um, obviously we only have 90 minutes of talent. Even at the beginning, um, despite the fact that I've been in the industry, industry for a long time, I have a lot of long, long-standing relationships, it was very challenging to get the ball rolling and sort of get into a space where people, artists, management felt comfortable um, in, in being in front of the camera and, and actually didn't feel that there was going to be a film that told the story and the truth of it. So I, I, at the beginning, we actually had a lot of challenges, even though, you know, Bert's, um, you know, profile and past is, is pretty amazing and he's worked with some incredible people. From this industry, we had some resistance. And I think it took a while where we had our first few interviews with some great artists and word just spread through the industry that, you know, these guys might be onto something. So mm-hmm. within like the first six months, I think there were challenges. And after that, um, there was a domino effect of people just actually contacting us and saying, we've heard about your project. Can we have our artists in your film? 
Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and something that you do that I that I was particularly taken with, and I think adds a lot, is you also go all the way back to, you know, essentially when you, you touch on to disco and the whole idea that that's when the clubs really started with DJs spinning records and things taking off from there. But you have, you know, you give us the meltdown, the destruction of disco, the uprising of EDM, and you also bring in the darker aspects of what happened uh, thanks to a lot of raves and all that kind of wiped EDM out for a while before the last resurgence that's now just, you know, enormous. Was that something that, that you felt was important to include? Um, yeah, I, I mean, Bert, if I may, I think it was absolutely important to include because it was it was part of the um, uh, the journey of the music itself. I mean, the, there are obviously stars in our film, but the music and, and sort of the culture is one of the stars of the story and probably the most prominent one. Um, and it was a good 15-year period where rave culture was really the essence of electronic dance music. Mm-hmm. And there is a quote, I think, from Paul Oakenfold in our film where he says, you see these massive festivals all over the world and these festivals all came from rave, which is true. Um, but there was a time, and especially in the United States, where rave culture was um, shunned upon, it was, it was misunderstood, there was a lot of Bias point of views. Um, so we really felt that it was important to tell that story and to tell the truth of it and all the spectrums of it, the, the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was impressed that you actually brought in the darker side of the raves, you know, with the drug use, uh, with allegations by many that music was causing people to use drugs, the whole idea of the Rave Act. You know, that I I think really sets the stage for how wonderful thing the industry now is. You really get to see the contrast. Absolutely, and I think it's also a lot of a lot of stuff that the current artists don't know. I mean, I think what was fascinating to me too was a lot of the the young artists um, and the the major kind of young EDM superstars. You know, a lot of them don't know the history of the of this genre because mm-hmm. it's you know a lot of people thought the music was coming from Europe, and there's like we we talk about in the film. I mean, there's the, the New York and Detroit and. Um, you know, these scenes are, the, are where this, in Chicago, or where a lot of this music came from originally. And so I think there's just so much in this film that uh, is so interesting that we learn along along the way, and we tell, hopefully, in a really entertaining way um, that, you know, people won't expect and won't know. And I think, uh, I think that's what made it a lot of fun. And, you know, ultimately, like we said, we want to provide an experience. We wanted to bring people uh, and give them access to a world that they have seen probably all over the place, but not been able to experience in this way. And, uh, and yeah, it was super special and having ultimately having the trust, like Cyrus mentioned of, of the cast, especially guys like Carl and, and Moby and, and Eric Marillo and Paul Oakenfold and, uh, you know, Pete Tong and a lot of the legends who have been in the industry for 30 years, some mm-hmm. of them, um, to be able to trust us with their with their story and with the story of this uh, of this culture in the background um, and how a lot of them put their you know livelihoods completely on the line for so many years, um, I think that's where it gets really interesting and why I always come back to saying that you know ultimately I feel like this uh, this this story is deeply rooted in, in human resilience. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. You know, in addition to your current interviews and you know, concert footage and whatnot. You have a lot of archival footage. Was it difficult to track down the archival footage you wanted to include, uh, such as Disco Demolition at uh, Kaminsky Park, 
um, Paradise Garage. I'm surprised some of that footage still exists. You know, and then handing it over to your editors, Alan Dusa and Greg Fenton. I mean, Greg, he knows music. He's very good at, uh, very adept at editing anything dealing with musical storytelling. You know, what he did on It Might Get Loud, the story of, you know, the electric guitar story with Jimmy Page, The Edge, and Jack White is to this day one of my favorite, favorite documentaries. And to see his work here makes what we started one of my favorite music documentaries. So what was that like for you, assimilating all of that, getting that archival footage, and then sitting down for this editing process? I think always, at least, you know, from from my standpoint, I feel like the most important thing is always assembling this a, a strong team. You know, th- this was a complete team effort on uh, on our part. You know, I think finding a team that works well together and everybody does different things is obviously the key to any business, any film, any any um, to making anything successful. And uh, obviously, you know, working with, with with Greg, Greg obviously has you know his track record speaks for himself. But I think. He really understood the direction in which we wanted to go and also I think the way in which we all had such different perspectives and, and different uh, backgrounds also provided you know made the made the the film so much more interesting um, mm-hmm. you know as far as getting access to footage you know that's never an easy uh, an easy <laughs> thing because the goal for us was to get footage that people have not has not uh, footage that people haven't seen before right and you know we scoured um you know and used all of our relationships and and used you know a lot of this stuff came from personal archives from people in the industry for decades and and footage that people legitimately cannot see anywhere else and so i think that was the hard part for us is how do we come up with footage that can help tell our story in a way that has never been seen before Um, because we didn't want to choose just generic stuff and yes some of the stuff people are aware of but the footage is 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 stuff that people ha- literally have never has never seen the light of day, and mm-hmm. I think, like you said, I mean, the goal for us was mixing kind of today's footage with with that with that with the archival uh, and telling the story in such a nonlinear fashion. We felt like that was the best way to to tell it in in the most unique and entertaining way. You know, I'm I'm curious because so often documentaries, depending on the type of documentary, the you'll plan out, you'll essentially have a timeline, you'll have something roughed out for where you think the story is going. You have your through line. Did you have a through line set out when you embarked on this process, or did your through line keep shifting as you get more material? I think the through line changes. I mean, we knew we wanted, you know, Martin and Carl were our two main vehicles. Um, From the outset, we knew that. And we knew that these were two guys who were on completely opposite, you know, trajectories and, we felt like this would be such an entertaining story to be able to interweave these two gentlemen who are completely, who have complete opposite um, lives. They're just completely opposite people. Sure. And we felt like, number one, that would be a phenomenal through line. However, making documentaries, you know, I try to go in with no con- preconceived notions, and I love learning about subjects as I'm filming them. So the story did change with how the industry changed and how these, these gentlemen's, you know, lives unfolded. And so we made a very conscious effort not to just make the movie that we wanted to make at the beginning. We wanted to, to be true to it and um, capture a story that didn't have an agenda, that didn't have um, you know, us saying, this is the story from the beginning. We wanted to follow these guys and let it play out uh, in real time. And so I think that's what makes it more fun and more 
uh, entertaining. And, and to be honest, it's something that just makes it stand the test of time and hopefully creates a timeless piece. Because for us, the goal was to make a definitive film on the genre, yes, but we also wanted things to unfold in, in, in a natural way and not force anything and not, like I said, come in with an agenda. Um, so I think from that aspect, you know, we did let things play out and the story did change multiple times in the edit. And that's what keeps it fun and interesting and ultimately makes the best product. You know, that you have so many great anecdotes that are peppered throughout. The one that really stood out for me is Martin talking about his neighbor who was deaf. So he could, you know, crank everything up as loud as he wanted and the neighbor wouldn't complain because he couldn't hear. You know, were there, were there any fun things or surprises that came out throughout your process here that really stand out for you? Um, there was um, one I mean, like, neighbor. I think, yeah, so Sorry, Cyrus can weigh in, but I think one of the things, too, for us is there's so much stuff on the cutting room floor. With <laughs> just amazing yeah. moments and, and funny stories. And, you know, like I said, to tell a story of this magnitude with these types of characters in under 90 minutes is you're not going to be able to include everybody and in everything, unfortunately. And so, um, you know, there's so many. Um, I think each of these guys are, are such characters and funny, funny guys. I mean, like, you know, you can imagine us filming all over the world at these various festivals and, and meeting so many different people. The stories are, are kind of endless. I think, you know, Martin living in his parents, you know, bedroom when we when we first, I mean, in his, in their house. I mean, I think at the beginning three years ago, it's like you know, as a seventeen year old, you know, he was still in school and he was you know still uh, you know living in his parents' house and still making music there. And I think that's what's incredible to see the evolution of you know um, of these guys in just you know a few years and how how much has changed and how it's dramatically changed music in American culture. Cyrus, do you have any, like, anecdotes you want to share? Yeah, my favorite one was actually one of these coincidences was actually one of the harshest critics of, of sort of commercial and non-underground dance music is um, Seth Troxler, an artist named Seth Troxler. And we had um, done an exclusive, actually, covering of this festival called the BPM Festival. Uh, and uh, we did an interview with him where he really harshly criticized Martin without getting into spoiler territory. You'll see it in the film. I'm sure you've seen it, but the audience. Um, and uh, it was very harsh. And we had to kind of like pull Martin aside as soon as we saw him and be like, look, there's some harsh words said about you. And, you know, I'm sure maybe your management may or may not agree with it, but I just wanted to see if you're cool with it. He's like, yeah, I'm totally cool with it, of course. So that was really cool of him. And then he hits us up like um, the day we get to Miami for Ultra Music Festival to film, which was not long after that interview. And he said, he was on a flight uh, from Sydney to, to Brisbane or something on a five-hour flight. I can't remember. Uh, and he got on the flight and Seth Trucks was sitting right next to him. Oh, God. And both of them knew that they had done the interview and they felt a little weird and awkward. And by the end of the flight, they exchanged numbers and have become friends. And there is something in the film that, we, that covers that portion of it as well. We thought that was a really strange and, you know, coincidence that was like cool for a movie, you know. Um, that was yeah, and I mean, filming, too, there were, there were so many funny things. I mean, there was one day at Ultra, um, shortly thereafter, that we were filming at David Guetta's house, and we had Steve Angelo from Swedish House Mafia there, and Tiesto, and, and, and Martin, um, and David was gracious enough to have us film in his house, and, and that scene's in the film, and, you know, it was the day that Martin was, t you know, having his first uh, appearance at Ultra, mm -hmm. and... He was so nervous, and Martin had been throwing up all morning, and, and was so so nervous about you know his, his debut at Ultra in front of you know so many people. And 
you know, as we pulled into the dock, actually, um, there was two different boats, and one of the boats actually, you know, I think Tiesto was driving, and it actually took off the whole front of um, David's um, dock, and literally wow. half of David's dock to his, you know, his house and how he got in was floating in the middle of the water, and all these guys were laughing, and it was just, you know, there were so many, like, just funny, I mean, literally, this guy's dock was, was hanging out in the, like, 200 feet away. I mean, there was no way to get in. And it's just funny because you could see the community and the camaraderie and how excited these guys were to, to be there. And, um, you know, David was obviously such a good sport and, and having us just completely destroy his dock. So, um, you know, there's just a lot of funny moments like that, too, that, um, you know, in making the film and, and, and making it with these types of guys that just made it so much fun and, um, you know, stuff that I know that we cherish. But, you know, that's the, that is part of the magic of music. It brings everybody from all walks of life together. And it, no matter what the circumstances are, you will bond and you will have fun and you will enjoy all, you know, all over music, no matter what kind of music. And I think that's something that we really see with the generations here, with interviews with Martin's father, interviews with Carl Cox's sister. You know, the their, the music touches. Absolutely, and, and even seeing that, how Martin had such, you know, had such support from his father, and his father travels with him and, you know, put him in a school that was for music and really supported his dreams and his, um, you know, and his passion um, at such a young age. And someone like Carl, who unfortunately, you know, wasn't given that opportunity, and his family really discouraged, you know, his parents, his dad especially, you know, had discouraged him from uh, from from doing it because it was so long ago and it didn't have the popularity and it wasn't as lucrative. And so, you know, they wanted him to get a real job and, and, and kicked him out of the house when he was making noise. And it was the complete opposite um, upbringing, which I also think, you know, adds another dimension to, to their stories uh, interweaving. Mm -hmm. So now do we have a distribution deal for what we started yet? Well, you know, we just had our world premiere at the L.A. Film Festival a couple of days ago. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the first time we played it for anybody. Luckily for us, you know, we have a lot of offers that have been coming in. Um, so we're, we're kind of going through those now and working stuff out. So we're hoping, uh, you know, the film will be out uh, towards the end of the year. And we have a very interesting kind of way in which we want to get the film out with a uh, kind of concert series element and a lot of support from the cast who, you know, want to uh, perform at the various events and all support from you know the, the biggest festivals in the world who want to help us really eventize the uh the distribution of the film so we're super excited to get it out there and it will be out for everybody to see uh in the not too distant future and and it will be out in a very unique and uh and powerful way an interactive way that hopefully uh you know really defines this and does justice to to, to the film and the industry well guys i mean i really hope you'll come back on the show when you when you are ready to send this out into the world. I would love to have you back on and talk more about what we started and your whole concertizing event uh, for for your lead-in distribution. I think that sounds fun. So I do hope... Yeah, I, that's the whole goal. I do hope you'll come back. And in the meantime, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. This has been absolutely... Uh, well, we, we can't thank you enough. You're, you're awesome and, and we love uh, everything that you do too. So, you know, we're, we're very uh, thankful and appreciative that you had us on oh bird cyrus thank yeah, you again thank you. and i look forward to talking to you again soon yes thank we you definitely will thanks guys bye-bye yeah, and that was bert marcus and cyrus saidi co-directors writers of what we started so mark your calendars keep your eyes open 
This is a doc you will want to see, and it will be out. And the fact they want to do a concert series leading up to the release once they've got distribution in place, that sounds fun. Next week, we're going to talk more about music when we have the director of Hired Gun, uh, who's going to join us, along with, uh, we're working out the details now, hopefully some of the Hired Gun musical talent who play with some of your all-time favorite bands and stars. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 